0: everyone, welcome to Talking Research. I'm Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This episode features an extensive discussion about sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. So today I'm talking to Professor Liz Kelly and Liz is just amazing. She's been researching and um, advocating towards an end to sexual violence and all forms of violence against women and children for the last 40 years. She's written a book which is called Surviving Sexual Violence and this book established the concept of a continuum of violence and uh, she's also written over 100 book chapters and journal articles. In 2000, she was also awarded a CBE for her sur- services combating violence against women and children and uh, in 2005 she was appointed to the board of commissioners of the women's national commission so she knows a lot she's done a lot and we've all benefited a lot from her work even though we might not know it and today i'm talking to her about coercive control and coercive control as i found was a form of domestic violence if um if i can simplify it as such but don't worry, Liz is going to tell you exactly what it is in the conversation. So let's dive in. Hi, Liz. Thank you for talking to me on Talking Research. Welcome. How are you today?
1: I'm fine. Thank you, Asmita. you want to
0: introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced? Oh,
1: well, I like to be introduced differently to different audiences. But given that this is about research, um, I'm a feminist Researcher. I'm now a professor. Um, but like most of us, I started off as a PhD student many years ago. Mm-hmm. And I spent most of my research life looking at issues of violence against women and girls. And how did you get into that? Well, I started off not as a researcher, I started off as an activist. And I was involved as a young woman in setting up a, a refuge, a shelter for mm-hmm. women who experience intimate partner violence. And also a rape crisis centre around sexual violence and a women's centre. So I was a local activist in the community that I was living in at the time. And I went to university as a mature student and I did my first degree in sociology and politics. And I wasn't sure I liked academia at that point. So I Mm -hmm. left and I went back and was doing community work and... Working with women's organisations where I live. And I found I had this question that I needed to answer, Mm. which seems a stupid question now. But, you know, the scholarship on violence against women has exploded in the last four decades. But when I started, there wasn't a lot. There really wasn't. And I wanted to think about all the forms of violence that women experienced in their lifetime, rather than just looking at them separately with separate Mm -hmm. groups of women as if there's no overlap and I, i i needed to answer this question and so that was my phd and which became surviving sexual violence and it 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 has just held me ever since the research process and the issue of violence against women and girls
0: yeah, I was going to say at some point that, you know, you have four decades of experience researching this and you've published, what, over a hundred papers and uh, book chapters and several books. And um, I mean, that's a that's a, it's almost a scary legacy in a sense. What do you make of that?
1: <laughs> I don't think of it like that. And actually, I've only ever published one book, although one has just arrived on my desk that I'm an editor of. I've edited several. Um, mm. but i've only written one book um, i've written lots and lots of research reports and um, journal articles and book chapters and somehow when you're doing it you, you're not you're not adding them up and you're not thinking oh that's number ninety eight that's number ninety <laughs> nine it's not like that it's that it's that you've got something that you need or want to say you need mm. and want to share um, and also it's been it's been my job I am I am a researcher, you know, I'm not a teaching academic. I'm, I'm somebody who has always done research and has worked with teams um, of other women um, mm. to do pieces of work together. And I feel that there's a we have a, an ethical responsibility. If, if we've been paid to do a piece of work, you have a responsibility to do it as well as you can and then to communicate what you think you've found. Right. So it's it's both a passion and a job.
0: I think that's a very balanced way to look at it. For someone who's just starting out, for me, it's a bit like, wow, okay. <laughs> Hopefully I can have that outlook 40 years down the line. To ground us in conversation today, we're going to be talking about one of your studies, which is finding the costs of freedom. And that one is centered around domestic violence. Uh, before we start talking about that, I want to ask you a very simple question, and that is, what is domestic violence? Because I feel like that is a term so used in conversation around us every single day that it's almost kind of the term has become normalized, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. So I, yeah, so I would like you to tell
1: me what domestic violence is. Okay, I probably wouldn't, sometimes I use domestic violence because I think it's a, the concept that's most widely recognized. Hmm. But I tend these days to use intimate partner violence more, to be a bit clearer about who's doing what to whom. Because quite often domestic violence is used in policy terms to conflate what happens between partners in intimate relationships with what happens in in families around all sorts of relationships. And mm-hmm. I think there are particular dimensions of partner relationships that are not the same as relationships between mothers and adult children, between siblings, mm-hmm. um, between further generations of families that may share a household. That they're, they're not the same dynamics. And most of what we know, we know from research about the partner relationships. And people sometimes wrongly transfer that to other familial relationships where the dynamics aren't the same, I don't think, or we certainly don't know whether they are. And I think we've gone through a whole process of giving this term different meanings. We began thinking it was about physical assault, and then we realized that there was sexual violence that happens within that, and then the psychological violence, and then More recently, one of my ex-colleagues has been doing an awful lot of work on economic abuse. And the concept that I find most helpful these days is Evan Stark's idea of coercive control. Mm -hmm. That this isn't about specific acts of certain kinds of violence that you might fit into criminal justice framings. This is about a household that is organised around the power and control of the male who sees himself as the head of the household and who thinks that it is his uh, legitimate uh, power to Mm. determine how that household should run. And he gets to determine how his partner behaves, but also how children behave in the household and that it should be organised for his benefit. So, So the issues of control and and living in an atmosphere in which one of the parties in the household expects it to organize around his wants his i don't want to say needs his uh, definition of what a household mm. should be that's that's the core thing and and, and the the physical and sexual violence is in most cases, more sporadic. It's not happening all the time, every day. For most people, it does for some, but for most it doesn't. But that atmosphere and that reality of being controlled and restricted is an everyday reality.
0: And what is the scope of, um, you know, domestic violence
1: as it is in the UK? Scope? Do you mean how how common it is? it? Yes. Okay. that's a problem with measurement, because mm. um, a lot of the measurement prevalence measures are about any incident. So if you've if you've been pushed or slapped once, that counts as domestic violence. What I'm talking about is is something that is not that. I'm I'm talking about something which is unidirectional, and one partner is the controlling centre mm. of that household, and and we haven't we haven't really measured it accurately using that as our definition and that's one of the reasons that we get these odd findings from prevalence surveys that men experience domestic violence as common as women do well, if, it, if any push or slack counts, yes, we are going to find that. But then in every country that I'm aware of, we know that the cases that are reported to the police, the cases that are identified in hospitals, the cases that are dealt with by um, NGOs, that's disproportionately women as victims and men as perpetrators. And that's because we're talking about this wider everyday pattern of mm-hmm. behaviour that everybody in the household is subjected to. Yeah. So we would... You would say that you know the findings for any incident are one in four here um, but we don't have an accurate figure for the pattern of coercive control
0: i want to uh, bring this to the finding the costs of freedom study Mm -hmm. so tell me about that study
1: okay this was a a a very exciting opportunity that uh, our lottery used to offer to organizations that it funded that they could develop a research project with an academic partner. But the question had to come from the NGO. And one of our NGOs that works on intimate partner violence, well, violence against women, really, but they, they had this question that they didn't know what happened to women when they left their services. There was no follow-up and they didn't know whether their pattern of services um, was the right pattern. So what they wanted to do was to follow a group of women after they had left the services yes. to see how their lives developed afterwards. So that we designed the study with them um, to follow a group of 100 women um, for three years, and we interviewed them at four time slots over that three years. And one of the things that was, I think, really unique about this study was that there was a a worker located in the NGO funded through the project and that worker was the one who maintained contact with all mm. the women taking part in the study and so there wasn't a attention for the organization that they were breaching confidentiality because they were the ones who held the names the addresses etc but it also meant that there was a, a possibility that if if any of the women was experiencing difficulties, that could be fed back into the organisation directly through this woman who was located in the organisation. So we we followed women for 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 three years, as I say, and we started off with a hundred and we ended up at the end still with sixty three, which is quite. A strong keeping if you like of the sample Mm. Um, and we created a set of bespoke research tools because we wanted to start off with this sense of what they had lived with as being coercive control Mm. so not just physical violence uh, and also to try and research a concept that i i have been using for some time which is called space for action mm. so it's different from just talking about agency what 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 i think happens within a an abusive relationship is that The control and the experience of it and how women try to adapt, and children for that matter, try to adapt to it, means that they narrow their space for action. They try to behave, for the most part, within the parameters that have been set for them. Mm. So their freedom is diminished in, in this. Having said that, I think women and children also resist and find spaces, little spaces of freedom, but they're often when the abusive man isn't around Uh, when he is around the capacity to think to be to act is controlled by him Mm. so we wanted to look at what what difference does it make if you end a relationship with someone who's abusive what difference does it make to this space for action does it does it actually expand do do you do you regain freedom in the process? Mm-hmm. And that's why the study is called Finding the Cost of Freedom, because coincidentally, we were doing this research at the time when austerity measures were biting quite seriously here. And mm-hmm. there were changes in rights and entitlements to welfare benefit, to legal aid. Access to housing became more and more difficult. So so we were, do women regain freedom in a context where actions of the state were also limiting what was possible for them in rebuilding. And we talk about them rebuilding lives. That they are, they're remaking themselves and they're rebuilding lives together.
0: Hmm. And uh, what you've said has prompted me to ask you this question: Why is it important to have the state support you while you're, you know, escaping an abusive household?
1: Okay. So many women at this point don't have paid employment, or if they do have paid employment, they find it necessary to give up that in order to resolve all the many challenges that they have to resolve for themselves and their children Mm. so so you need to have access to some kind of income Mm. and certainly in in the uk for a very long time and i know this isn't the case in many countries in the global south but for us here there has been a right to a basic minimum income welfare benefits if you're unemployed if you separate from a partner who maybe was supporting you, but isn't doing any longer. And somehow there's something about economic independence that is a piece of this rebuilding a life, that that you have an entitlement to financial support. And and a whole lot of things have been built around this over the last 40 years of work on um, domestic violence here. So we built in a right to something that was called a resettlement grant. So if you've left your household, and you don't have any of the property that was in there you don't, you don't have beds the fridge the television you have a right to a resettlement grant in order to replace those basic needs really and that has definitely been cut back so that that no longer exists in the way that it used to similarly women who are escaping violent relationships had a right to rehousing and the loss of a lot of the social housing here because it was basically sold, uh, people could buy their social housing. So it became privately owned rather than a a social benefit for those who needed it. The fact that we have less and less social housing Mm. and women and children have to increasingly move into temporary accommodation, private landlords rather than social landlords, that creates more uncertainty, more insecurity. For them.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's something that needs to be emphasised constantly, especially in a political climate where these needs, these very essential needs are being uh, framed as, you know, ridiculous costs. What you've said has also made me wonder about the other factors that support long term settlement for someone who's gotten out of an abusive situation.
1: Yeah, well, one of the things that we found and also we created a an additional tool to measure this in phase 3 of the interviews was how many of the women faced post separation abuse so you can you can have ended the living together in the household but that doesn't necessarily mean you've ended the abuse and i think too many professionals think well if they just leave then that'll sort it all out and what happens is the abuse shapeshifts so mm-hmm. yes there may be less physical assault there may be less sexual violence but there there remain attempts to control and uh, attempts to interfere in the efforts that the women and children are making to rebuild lives so economic abuse becomes much more significant at this point with some men refusing to pay child maintenance sometimes even taking out loans or buying things on the internet in women's names so they then get a bill for things that they have not Mm. chosen to purchase themselves harassment um using technology now phones the internet but also using other institutions against women. So not all of the men did this, but a significant proportion of them created issues in relation to the family court, uh, constantly contesting issues in the family court about the divorce, about maintenance, about contact with children. So, So women were just in this having to go back to the family court again and again and again and again. Sometimes using social work, um, reporting that the women weren't uh, looking after their children sufficiently, so then she's investigated rather than him. Mm. Um, so th- there's, a, there's a way in which institutions become unknowingly complicit in um, attempts to continue to control. Um, mm. Sometimes they used friends and family, to put pressure on her. Sometimes they also used children where they had regular access to children. They tried to get children to tell them where their secret address was. So there, there were a whole lot of ways in which forms of control or attempted control continued, even though there may have been much less physical and sexual assault.
0: What ways do you find were helpful in supporting survivors and uh, aiding their long-term
1: settlement? Well, part of what we think this report shows and how it's also been used by women's organisations here is that there's a need for longer-term support, mm. that, that actually having this short-term support, which enables someone to uh, be rehoused, to resolve the most immediate threats to their safety, that that isn't enough. And we found with the measurement of space for action that it, that it increased very rapidly in the first six months after mm. separation. Then it kind of went into a plateau for about two years, whilst women were trying to resolve all of the legal, financial, housing, health issues that they and their children had. And then at the end of the, that, that two years, it started to increase again as they'd established some kind of stability and new framework for living and so part of what we were arguing is that actually there need to be longer term support services they're not they're not acute in the same way as at the first point women come forward so they're probably more of accessing when you need it kind of thing rather than ongoing and the NGO that we did this, work with which is one of the biggest ones in london actually has actually changed some of what it provides so it it does much more offering of in times for mm. women who have had the intense acute support but that they can come back and that they can access legal advice and and whatever else support that they might need in, in terms of this process of rebuilding their life mm. but it tends not to be funded so well so part of our piece of work was to show that actually funders need to support this work and not just do this very limited short intervention around reducing risk
0: you're Briefly mentioned what impact was achieved uh, from the study, but you know, more broadly, uh, did you think this caused a significant shift in how coercive control
1: rehabilitation is viewed? Um, well, it's it's had a number of impacts. One is that one of the researchers who worked on it, Nicola Sharp Jeffs, she was very taken with how significant economic abuse was post-separation and how it interfered entirely with women's attempts to rebuild a life. And so Mm. she has, as a result of the research, set up an NGO called Surviving Economic Abuse um, to get more recognition of this. And she's now, there are now 12 staff In that organisation, they're working with banks and financial institutions and changing the way in which this is understood. And they've created this concept called coerced debt Mm. to help financial institutions see that you shouldn't be making somebody responsible for this debt because it was not their choice that this happened so that's that's one big thing Mm. the second thing is that one of the big organizations that brings together local domestic violence services women's aid england they've been critical for some time of a shift to risk-based interventions Mm. um and they have used this study and especially the concept of space for action to argue for a needs-based approach to interventions and support services. And they've got a very big project, pilot project called Change That Lasts um, mm. that uses some of the ideas um, underpinning that piece of research. Mm. Um, and they're, they're currently piloting this different way of thinking about intervention. Mm. So I, I think it, I think it's Provided research evidence and a conceptual framework to challenge what I call risk discourse, which has absolutely dominated public policy here about domestic violence for the last 15 years.
0: Okay. And, you know, I'm, I'm listening to your talk and it makes me think of um, you and everyone else who's doing all of this work and, you know, coming up with ways in which we can tackle these very pressing problems. And then I also think of the pushback that that exists. I don't know, do you think that it's become more prominent now with, you know, the rise in internet rolling and the, the, the more you try to mainstream concepts such as, say, coerced debt, and, you know, you try to bring attention to these forms of abuse that aren't considered as important or as, you know, as urgent, do you, do you think that there's more of a more of a pushback from uh, from certain sections of society
1: in, in in your work or do you think that it hasn't been affected by that? I, I don't think they're connected necessarily mm. Let me think my way through this because I'm not sure where I'm going to go. I do think there's more of a pushback There's a pushback to be gender neutral there's a pushback to just have these little short, Interventions that reduce risk rather than create safety and freedom, and I think that's to, a lot to do with the issue becoming mainstreamed. So it it no it the issue no longer belongs in inverted commas to women's organisations. Everybody wants to mm-hmm. own this issue now, and and some organisations I think have also monetized it in particular ways by creating forms of intervention that they they control the training for. They set the agendas. So we've got kind of almost like private companies operating in the field that were never there before. Mm. Um, And the police become big key players, politicians. So all, all of that, all of that is the case um, Mm. so that it's no longer an issue that is owned by women's organizations and the discourse around it then becomes a different kind of discourse and part of what I think our work as researchers and activists is it is to see this as a arena of struggle and that um, we have to be constantly thinking about what concepts we use and choosing not to use certain concepts but also uh, involved in the creation of new ways of conceptualizing and thinking about this issue that put survivors at the center. Mm. So so for me space for action is putting survivors at the center, but it's but it's also saying implicitly her space in which she can act is not something that is just of her own volition it, it it is affected by the behavior of the perpetrator but also by all the other um agencies that she comes into contact with and by the wider socio-political context so mm. it, it's not simply a case that you can uh, leave separate and then your life is your own <laughs> to mm. um direct no that that depends on whether there is support for you to explore and unpick the ways in which you've been diminished and reduced in this relationship and how you want to remake yourself what woman do you want to be given that Mm. that that has happened to you what lessons do you want to take with you forward and what things do you want to leave behind and then how, how does the wider society enable or put barriers in, in the way of your moving forward in the way that you want to. So this isn't just a matter of individual agency. That That's the reason I use Space for Action, because I want the wider social context to be part of how we think about what mm. is or isn't possible for women who are yeah rebuilding their life after domestic violence.
0: Mm, very interesting. And um, you've said at the start that you were an activist before you going to research and that's also something that I found with really with everyone that I've spoken to so far for this podcast that you know they feel this passion for the issue that maybe someone who's researching for example physics <laughs> won't necessarily feel in the same way so what is the relationship between Sexual
1: research, sexual violence research, and activism—is if there is one. I can only, I can only answer for me, but I'm still an activist. I kind of do my activism slightly differently now. I, I don't do that much direct support of survivors, although in one's life, one's always encountering survivors. So it, it's true for some of my students. It's true for any, any group of women. I know there will be survivors there, and so I have conversations that are about that lived experience, but I. But I'm not in a, a support, an ongoing support relationship about it anymore. My activism these days is much more at a, at a kind of strategic level. And um, I was co-chair of the End Violence Against Women Coalition for 10 years with Mara Ai Larasi. And we were trying to create a space for feminist thinking and feminist organizing within violence against women and girls. Mm-hmm. And, and especially to say we're talking about... About violence against women and girls we're not just talking about domestic violence and if we're going to have government policy at national and local level we want it to be violence against women and girls and we want it to be compliant with international human rights standards and we want there to be a particular attention to the needs of uh, minoritized black and minoritized women mm. um, that those voices tend to be on the margins and we wanted to put them more at the centre of our thinking um, mm. and we've done a lot of campaigning work as evil but also provided sometimes greater sometimes lesser a thinking space for women from the violence against women sector to come together and think about some of the difficult challenges that we have and how we how we hold on to parts of this agenda mm. and how we influence public discourse so, so that's one part of activism my activism and then I would say the other part is more recent, joining the Million Women Rise Collective that organises an annual march around violence against women on the Saturday closest to International Women's Day. And that's a, a black feminist led organization and i just go and do what needs doing um, hmm. which might be making placards it might be fundraising it might be being part of a protest hmm. and that that's that's a kind of activism where i'm i'm, I'm just a participant in a network
0: hmm. sounds lovely and um i again want to draw upon your experience of all these years and um you've been researching for what 40 years how has the research landscape changed in this period? Have you seen any particular trends in the transformations?
1: Well, it, it's I would say it's now a field, a global mm. field of research and of policy and law reform and models of intervention that that actually was unimaginable in the nineteen seventies when I first began to be part of a, a group that established a refuge in a small town. I, I could mm. never have imagined. And when I did my when I did my PhD, I think there were probably two shelves of books in the university library on all forms of violence against women. And now you could probably fill, I don't know, seven libraries. Um, with all the stuff that has been written and produced and so I think that means that we're in yeah we've created a field but in that creation of a field there are now I think contested concepts contested theoretical framings and also a a challenge that we that we think about who the we is when we say we um that that there are there's research from the global south there's research looking at intersections um within all of the forms of violence and so i think there's there's a way in which a a reflection is needed about who's a knower and Mm. and what we think is or isn't known and the extent to which we can or can't generalize and that is both thinking within one's own society that we probably know far less. For example, some some recent research by a woman called Hannah Bowes has been looking at older women about whom we haven't known a huge amount until relatively recently we've got knowledge gaps in relation to women with disabilities so so we need to look in our own societies about what is known and what is not known um, mm. but then also not think in a arrogant way that what's known in, in your local situation applies everywhere else
0: mm. so
1: we need to be interested in, in what's known elsewhere and to reflect through that back into your own situation mm. and
0: I mean I'm just thinking about of- about you doing this work for such a long while i'm sorry i keep coming back
1: to that but uh i'm just wondering if this has taken an emotional toll on you people often say this to me and it doesn't really it doesn't really make sense to me i mm. actually think it's Given me extraordinary opportunities to meet researchers and activists from around the world, to visit all sorts of different places, and to make friendships and connections with women who I wouldn't ever have met had I not been doing this work, to do international projects. We've done a number of. I think we've probably done about 10 European projects where we've partnered with organisations and researchers from other countries. And I've also got to... I think, I think it's because I've never only focused on victimisation.
0: Mm.
1: From the very beginning, I wanted to know how women coped, how they survived how they resisted violence so I, I i've never been focused on what it what exactly it is that is done mm. i've always been focused on how do women and children manage and adapt and survive these things so yeah. may, maybe because that's always been my frame of reference it, it it's never felt to me like this is something which um drains my energy mm. if you see what i mean i mean i get tired like everybody gets tired and sometimes i'm overworked and I have too many deadlines but that would be true whatever work I was doing it's it's not specific to this topic Um, and I feel like I've got to I've got to look at the worst but also experience the best of women be that survivors researchers activists that that actually this is a space in which a lot of solidarity gets created where there's huge amounts of creativity and thought and carefulness but also every now and again a lot of joy and that doesn't mean that there aren't some days where a particular case makes me enraged and I actually think if if I didn't feel that then I think I should leave this field because if if yeah. occasionally you don't feel that overpowering rage at what happens to women and children and the impunity for most perpetrators, then, yeah, you've, you've lost your heart in this issue. But yeah. I don't feel, I really, really don't feel that every day. Mm. And I, yeah. I feel, um, my father would say blessed, and I don't mean it in a religious sense. I, I feel blessed by the colleagues that I have, the students that I get to teach, the, the colleagues that I get to work with and do projects with and who then go on to you know, build their own careers within this issue. These are things to be treasured, not things to feel negatively affected by, if that makes sense. It definitely does. It definitely
0: does. And I think that's a really valuable perspective. So thank you for sharing that. I think finally, what I want to ask you is that we've spoken about coercive control today. And in the past, you've written about how the we in activism in this field has kind of been lost over time. Please correct me if I'm
1: misquoting you. No, no, you're quoting me very, very accurately.
0: Okay, great. So you've spoken about how that collectiveness needs to be brought back in. So when we're looking at something like coercive control, which is still a very fresh, very fresh term, not a very fresh problem, obviously, but a very fresh way of looking at the problem, how do we
1: collectivise our action towards it? I think one of the things that I feel has happened in terms of my question: Have we lost the "we"? Is that there's been a kind of professionalisation within women's organisations? In the past, I think we all recognise that many of us, and depending on how widely we define violence against women, all of us are survivors. All, all I, I would maintain that all women have experienced some form of intimate intrusion in the street, in public space, for example. Not all of us have had a coercively controlling relationship but it's about recognizing for for me that this is not about an us and a them it's it's about violence structures women's lives under patriarchy Mm. and and if you're one of the fortunate ones who only has um sexual harassment in your history great but that doesn't mean you're not a survivor of men's violence you are Mm. we are all survivors of men's violence and that's the part I want us to get back to. I want us to get back to thinking that this is not about professionals and clients. This is not about the supporters and the supported. This Mm. is actually about the condition for women everywhere. And that to change that, we all need to be part of a movement against it. So instead of seeing women as service users, you are saying at this point in your life, you need support to deal with these things but please when you've got a bit of energy join us in being part of a movement to challenge this to change this Mm -hmm. and I feel that professionalisation places um, those who are using services or needing services in a different category to the resistors of violence and we all need to be resistors of violence if we're going to Mm -hmm. change it yeah wow
0: I think that's that's a great place to wrap this up on that we all need to be resistors of violence even if I haven't personally experienced that form of violence it doesn't mean i shouldn't be working towards
1: absolutely yes. yeah making,
0: making sure that no one else has to experience that mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. thank you so much liz thank you for talking to me today thank
1: you for uh, your interesting questions <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you and i mean thank you for all your work i mean we, we we all have so much to thank you for but really thank you so much
1: oh that's lovely thank you for recognizing it
0: Okay, that was Dr. Liz Kelly. And this was episode 9. We've got episode 10 coming out next week. So check back then and let me know what you thought of this episode. You can find us on Twitter. We're at talk underscore research. We're also on Facebook and Gmail as well. So write me an email or send a tweet or however you prefer to do it. Also, rate and review this if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. That'll really help us get traction. And thank you for listening and all the support so far. It's been amazing. And if you need, there is a link to organizations that support victims and survivors of sexual violence. So check that out. I'll see you next weekend. I'm Asmita and this is Talking Research.